Okay, the second reading comes from Song of Songs, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 to 17. This is Solomon's Song of Song, more wonderful than any other. Young woman, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like its spreading fragrant. No wonder all the women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. Run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. Young women of Jerusalem, how happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. Young women, woman, how right they are to adore you. I am dark but beautiful. O, o women, women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tent. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards, so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. Tell me, my love, where are you leading your flocks today? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? Young man, if you don't know, O oh most beautiful woman, follow the trail of my flock and graze your young goats by the shepherd's tents. You are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. How lovely are your cheeks, your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. Young woman, the king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrant of my perfume. My lover is like a sachet of myrrh, lying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of sweet henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Young man, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Young woman, you are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed. Fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house and pleasant smelling firs are the rafters. Well done, Annette. I was gonna get Pete to stay up here. He could have done the, the, the bloke's bit and then um, Let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much for the Song of Songs and uh, we pray now that as we look at it we would understand more about true sex as you've made it and for us to enjoy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once when I was teaching a Year 9 scripture class, uh, a girl asked me the question, Why does God hate sex? Uh, and I wonder if anyone's asked you that question before. Or, and I actually wonder if you've ever asked that question before. You know, maybe it's because the Bible says that it's wrong to have sex with someone you're not married to. Or maybe it's because the Bible seems to kind of discourage the fun sort of sex that the world seems to promote. It just seems to have too many rules and restrictions that, you know are so hard and fast compared to the freedoms that the world talked about. It may be also that 
people think that God hates sex because Christians don't talk about sex nearly as much as the world does. In fact, sex can be a bit of a taboo around Christians. It's sort of a bit off limits. It's the kind of subject that a husband and wife can talk about, but really only within the bedroom and maybe only with the lights off. And so it seems maybe that God is anti-sex. But this attitude to sex by Christians isn't something that's terribly new. Like many things, it all goes back to the ancient Greeks. See, the ancient Greeks saw the body as unspiritual. They saw the body as unspiritual. They basically thought that anything to do with the body was evil or, or unspiritual. You know, God's kind of made bodies as containers for the good stuff on the inside. And all the outside stuff really isn't worth talking about. That's not really, you know, the body stuff isn't really worth giving much thought to. What really matters is the soul, the spiritual stuff, not the flesh, fleshly, physical, bodily function stuff. And this view of sex and bodies and stuff, I would think, has rubbed, rubbed off on the church. You see, early Christians seem to have a view of sex that it was kind of fleshly and gross and therefore not really the kind of thing that nice church people would talk about. And whilst this view of sex is wrong, these early Christians almost got away with thinking like this, except for one really big problem, and that is the Song of Songs. You see, the Song of Songs is very positive about sex. The Song of Songs is very positive about sex. This book in the Old Testament part of our Bibles talks openly and unashamedly about sex. It mentions private parts and private acts. And it's full of all sorts of imagery that would make anyone blush. don't know if anyone's on the Bible reading roster over the next three weeks, but wait and see. And so the fact that this book of sex is in the Bible must have been a real challenge. Because they thought that God was against physical things like sex. And so obviously... The Song of Songs couldn't be talking about sex, could it? Because it's in the Bible. And, and of course, in the Bible, you don't talk about gross things like sex. You just It must be talking about something different. And so they thought the Song of Songs is actually talking about spiritual things, not sexual things. It must be talking about God and the church and, and prayer and other spiritual things. And so having made up their mind that it's all about non-sex stuff, they then set about trying to interpret it that way. They looked for another meaning that was spiritual, not sexual. The early church looked for a spiritual meaning. They wanted to spiritualise the Song of Songs. And so they saw that the love between the man and the woman that's spoken of so richly, as we've already heard tonight, it's actually talking about the love that Christ has for the church. And there's a bit of a warrant for that because Ephesians 5 does actually make this sort of parallel between Christ as like the husband and the church like the bride. So there's a bit of warrant for it there. And with this in mind, they, they set off on their journey to interpret the Song of Songs as 
as a poetry about the love of God for his people. And as they did that, they came up with all sorts of imaginative interpretations. And so, for example, they said that the two breasts refer to the Old and the New Testaments and that the sachet of perfume between them was Jesus. And away they went with all sorts of imaginative ways to try and look at everything as about God and Jesus and the church and nothing about sex at all. And I've got to say, they really had some excellent imaginations. But what's wrong with that? What's wrong with looking at a book like The Song of Songs and just sort of doing this kind of like, let's work out an analogy or an allegory? What's so wrong with that? Well, the problem with interpreting the Bible this way, allegorising it, is that we end up inventing hidden meanings and we really can't have any confidence in what the Bible really says. It's more about imagination than revelation. It's kind of like, you know how psychologists have got their little ink blots? They're, they're, they're raw shark diagrams and they say, what, you know, you've got an ink, ink blot there and they say, what does it look like to you? And they say, oh, it's like a beautiful field with lots of smiley people in a happy place. They say, oh, isn't that nice? And show the same ink blot to somebody else and they say, oh, it's a man with a chainsaw and he's hacking up people. It's like, whoa, what's going on in your mind? The same thing would... See, we can approach the Bible that way as well. And all we're doing really is talking about ourselves and not the Bible. That's, that's a bit of a danger, isn't it? And what's more, anything that got tricky in the Bible, we just allegorise it. So we'd say, parting of the Red Sea, can't imagine how that would work. Maybe it didn't really happen. Maybe it's just allegory. Maybe it's just talking about how when you go through tough times, God will part those waves for you and you'll walk through the sea and everything will be fine. That's what it's talking about. And Jesus rising from the dead, well, that's a bit tricky. He rose in my heart. I'm happy with that. Can you see the problem with that? You see, we... We've got to look at the Bible as it's written, understand it appropriately. And when we look at the book of the Song of Songs, ultimately you've got to say, if something looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so at the end of the day, the Song of Songs is about sex. It celebrates sex. It celebrates sex as a beautiful creation by God. It shows that sex and love can bring happiness and joy. But it also is going to show us that sex and love can cause real pain. And we'll get to that in the next few weeks in particular. Kind of, the whole of the Song of Songs is sort of an extended commentary on the one verse from Genesis 2.25 that said, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Kind of like this one verse has been filled out over eight chapters of Song of Songs. But it also shows us that we have now fallen from this wonderful intimacy to a place where we must now clothe ourselves because we are naked and we feel shame. Remember that's what happened? Adam and Eve took the apple, sin came into the world, they looked down and say, uh-oh, got to clothe ourselves, we feel shameful. You see, you get a bit of that in the Song of Songs as well. Friends, I think we need to look at this book at face value and ask God to teach us what he wants us to hear about. We carry around this glorious love poem in our Bibles. 
And it's right for us to read it and right for us to try and understand what it means for us today. Otherwise, we're going to miss out on something beautiful and important about God's character and his creation. But we've got to realise all of this, that it is poetry. We've got to read it as poetry. Have a look at the first verse. It says, this is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. What does it tell us? What does this book tell us about itself? It says it's a song. In fact, it's the song of songs, which means it's the greatest song of all time. You know, kind of like Jesus is talked about as the Lord of Lords, meaning he's the greatest Lord. Or that bit of the temple that's called the Holy of Holies, meaning the most amazingly holy bit. It's like this is the song of songs, meaning it's the greatest song ever. We read this. This is our interpretive key. We've got to say it is one song and it is an awesome song. But it's a song, not a list of laws. It's a song, not a historical account. It's a song, not a letter to a church. Like I said before, we've got to read the Bible in its text types, in its genre. It's a, it's a song. And so we've got to understand it as a song. And, and, and since it's a song, a poem, we can expect it to use imagery and emotions. Now, if you're an arty-farty, poetry-loving, art student kind of person, this is going to be like breathing air to you. You're going to say, oh, this is, I'm just totally in my comfort zone. If you're an analytical, mathematical, engineering student kind of person, you might find some of this stuff just a little bit harder. And that's okay. We can bear with each other in all of this. But regardless of whether this is, you know, natural to sit down and ooh and ah over poetry or, or whether it's just like grinding gears for you, whatever it is, we together have got this bit of the Bible. It's poetry and we're going to read it that way. And we need to realise the poetry tries to communicate feelings. That's what poetry does. This is not a medical textbook to explain how all the bits work. This is something telling us about the feelings. It's like that great line by Elton John, which was quoted in Moulin Rouge. Can, can you think of it to come to mind? I hope you don't mind that I put down in words how wonderful life is when you're in the world. You know, it's kind of that heart, fluffy sort of feeling stuff. That's what the Song of Songs is all about. And what we've got here is a celebration of God's gift of romantic love. Have a look at verses 2 and 3 again. Listen to this. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. Oh, it's kind of like, you know, it's like walking through the, you know, the, the boys, the young boys blushing yet. Yeah, the older boys blushing. Uh, it... This is a sort of soppy stuff, okay? This is kind of like walking through the, the perfume section of Meyer up at, at Chilabra Square. It's like, would you like spray? No, really? What is that stuff? Or like, oh, I like that stuff. You know what I mean? This is kind of beat your heart sort of stuff. And there's all the senses are involved here. Sight, smell, sound, touch, taste. Look at verses 9 and 10. You are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. That's a good line, guys. How lovely are your cheeks? Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck? 
enhanced by a string of jewels. He's trying to use something very concrete to describe something that's very unconcrete. You know, his feelings. He's not, you can't, you know, if you're sitting down and having sort of a, an identicate, you know, can you explain to me exactly what the ears look like? Well, it's not like that kind of stuff. It's just like, how, does it, how do you feel as a result of seeing the person you love and, and their ears and all that kind of stuff? See, what he does is he compares feelings to other things. He compares feelings to So he'll compare eyes with doves, hair with goats, breasts with towers, and even the nose with the Tower of Lebanon leading towards Damascus. Uh, that, that's a positive thing. Uh, you, if you're wanting inspiration for future Valentine's Days, uh, you may find some stuff here. To avoid, perhaps. <laughs> As we're reading this stuff, we, we are, we are inspire, inspired to experience the power of love. He puts down in words what he feels in his heart. And he does this by comparing abstract feelings to concrete things. He, he's not talking literalistically. He's talking figuratively. He's not saying, your breasts are like, like centre point tower. It's like, in what sense? Oh, no, let's not go there. It's not like that. It's like he's trying to... you. He, Help us feel what he experienced when he saw their beauty. And as we seek to understand this song, this poem, we will see this. But we also need to see something else. We need to read it as one song. It is the song of songs. Now some people have gone through this and have identified up to 31 different poems inside it. And they've said, it, here's a poem about this, here's a poem... I mean, Okay, you can do that if you like. But when I read that first line, it, it says it's a song. It's the song of songs. So as I've got that there, I'm going to say, well, if I'm interpreting this, I reckon that's the way I'm going to go with this. I'm going to try and understand it as one poem, and I'm going to read it that way. And when you look at it in that sense, what it does is it forces us to, to see a progression from one point in the poem to the next. And you see it, it's, when you look at it this way, it's like, yeah, I think that makes sense. The couple moves from desire, as we've seen in chapter 1, ultimately through to consummation. You see, the, from the, the gaze of longing, like, oh, check that out, to kind of the satisfaction of union, which is where it all goes and happens, right? And there's a unity throughout the whole poem that's seen in some repetition. Three times we read these words were very similar. Chapter 2, verse 7. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. It's sort of like those Shakespearean plays where the, the, the clown comes out and keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Or there's that line that appears time and time again. This is what we get through the Song of Songs. Another sign of its unity. And while we've got this verse here... It shows us a key theme throughout the Song of Songs, and that is that sexual love should happen at the right time. It should happen at the right time. Uh, it should not be rushed. It shouldn't be done before the right time. But it should happen at the right time. We're going to talk a bit more about that in weeks to come. But this whole progression from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 is seen in the climax in the final chapter. In verse 8, in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, where we say, Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? 
place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. As you read this and you read around it, you can see that this is the moment that the couple has been patiently waiting for. And the seven chapters before this get us to this point. But as you read through the Song of Songs, you kind of look to bits in the middle and it seems like they've already kind of gone a bit further. You know, it's, how does this going to fit in and how does it work? Well, I think as we look at the Song of Songs, we need to recognise a dream sequence. A dream sequence. You know what it's like when you see a movie and things are happening and then suddenly the actor is sitting down in a chair and they suddenly do this sort of... and they drop off to sleep... And then you get off into this thing like they're having a dream. And things just get a bit weird and stuff happens and then they wake up. And so you've had this kind of departure from the main plot that's gone off in a different direction and done stuff. And it does, it's not necessarily sequential and it's not necessarily real. It's kind of like what's been happening in their mind. Maybe the things that they've been anxious about have come up in this dream sequence. The most famous dream sequence of all, I think, is The Wizard of Oz. You know, Dorothy's there. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, too late. Uh, Dorothy's there. Uh, there's, you know, there's the big um, tornado. She gets banged on the head, and then suddenly you get into Technicolor. And the whole thing's a big dream. And then we get right at the end, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. And then everything goes to black and white again, and the dream's over. And all of that is this big, long dream in the middle, which sort of makes sense of a whole lot of different things. That's what the Song of Songs is like, I think. I think that's right. And in particular, we see in the middle chapters that, that something goes badly wrong. Chapter 3, verse 1. One night as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. And there's sadness and there's anxiety and there's violence. And I think it's all happening in her dream. Now, I didn't come up with this. Uh, someone very smart did. His name is Barry Webb. Uh, his sermons from Moore College decades ago have influenced me enormously as I've been preparing these, these talks. And there's a book that I've ordered in for us that hopefully will be here by next Saturday. And it's called Five Festal Garments by Barry Webb. There's one chapter in it on the Song of Songs. And I think it's the best thing written on the Song of Songs. It's so clear, so simple, and he explains this way of understanding the Song of Songs that I think really, really works very, very well. There's a lot of Barry Webb that's pumping out in these sermons that I'm doing, the good bits. Um, and so I, I really want to tip my hat to his ministry. But as we look at the big picture of the Song of Songs, we've got to see one more thing from this very first verse. We're still stuck in the first few words of the first verse. Well, we've done more than that. But it says, this is, song of, this is Solomon's Song of Songs more wonderful than any other. It says, this is Solomon's Song of Songs. Now you might think that this means that Solomon wrote it. It could be. Or it might mean that it's a song about Solomon. Or maybe it's a song that's dedicated to Solomon. Uh, if you get a very, very literal Bible and you look at this verse, and you look at the Hebrew, in fact, it says literally, the Song of Songs which is to or for or of Solomon. That's literally what it says. 
Now, is that by Solomon or for Solomon or to Solomon? What, is it, what does all that mean? Well, at the end of the matter, who knows? It doesn't matter too much. But it does mark this out as wisdom literature. The mention of Solomon tells us it is wisdom literature. There are a few bits of the Bible that talk more about creation than redemption. They talk more about what it's like to be in God's kingdom. They don't really talk much about the temple or about keeping the law or about the covenant. It's more about life as a member of God's kingdom. In particular, it's about wise living as the people of God. Wise living as the people of God. So if you've flicked through the Old Testament before and you had a bit of time looking at bits, when you read this, you'll see it's quite similar to Proverbs or to Job or to Ecclesiastes. They're kind of like all stable mates. They're all sort of you know, within the same series of style of stuff and it's called wisdom literature. And if you want to understand it, the most famous wisdom bit is Proverbs. Let me read to you the opening verses. This tells you what it's about. It says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. There you go. It's again two or four of Solomon. David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline and to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just and fair. These proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance by exploring the meaning in these proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles. And this is very important. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. I read that out to you because that's the introduction to Proverbs. And I think it could have actually been slapped right here at the start of Song of Songs. Because the thing that Proverbs is trying to do is the thing that Song of Songs is trying to do. But with all of this, as we look to gaining wisdom and discipline and knowledge and discernment and guidance, we need to see the foundation and that is this. Verse 7, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. The word there in capitals represents the special name of God for his people, which is sometimes translated Yahweh. The foundation of all wisdom is fearing the Lord. You've got to get this right first. You see, you could easily look at the Proverbs and you could look at the Song of Songs and say, it tells me, what I've got to do to become friends with God? Because if I'm being acting pretty wise, he's going to say, well, I might like you now. No, 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 no. You've got to get your relationship with God sorted first. Then you jump into Song of Songs. Then you jump into Proverbs. Then you jump into Job. But with all of this, it talks about the foundation is fearing the Lord. What does it mean? Is it fearing like the fear you have um, like dying of cancer or or failing an assessment or fear of heights? Is it that kind of fear? Well, no, not necessarily. It's more about having the right reverence for someone in authority. And so I've got to ask, do you have a proper fear of the Lord? Do you know the Lord and do you respect him as your king? Because the way that we fear the Lord today, thousands of years after the Song of Songs has been written, is by trusting in Jesus. As we read in Romans, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. 
And it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. You see, in all of this, all this advice about good sex as God made it is pretty unimportant if you don't actually have a relationship with God in the first place. And what's more, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then no matter how good your sex is in this world, you'll be under God's judgment in the next. The most important thing out of everything I've said tonight is this. The most important thing in life is knowing Jesus. You've got to get this right. Otherwise, the next four weeks is just going to be blah, blah, blah. The most important thing in life is knowing Jesus. But I wonder why it is that people don't naturally just turn to Jesus and say, I want to trust in you as my Lord. I, want to, I believe that you are the one who saves me if I trust in you. I believe that you'll forgive my sin. What stops people doing that? Well, I think it might have something to do with sex. You see, one of the reasons people don't come to Jesus is they don't want to give up their freedoms. They don't want to give up their freedoms that allow them to have sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé before they're married. They say, I don't want to come to Jesus because I'm going to have to give that up and I don't want to. Maybe they don't want to come to Jesus. Maybe you don't want to come to Jesus yet because it means you're going to have to stop having casual sex with people you're not married to. Or maybe you don't want to trust in Jesus because you don't want to stop having homosexual sex or seeing a prostitute. Or maybe you don't think you can come to Jesus because you feel just too guilty for misusing your body by having illicit sex. Maybe sex has got a lot to do with why people don't come to Jesus. And it's possible that if you tonight have not in your heart of hearts come to Jesus, it maybe sex has got something to do with it. Well, let me say this to you. Jesus will accept you no matter how you've misused sex. Jesus will accept you no matter how you've misused sex. See, when Jesus was talking to a woman, he told her about how she could be completely fulfilled in life. He talked about living water. And after Jesus told her about this, she said to him, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. I want this fulfilment in life. And then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. And Jesus said, go and get your husband. And then it's kind of like that needle over vinyl sound. Uh-oh. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband because you've had five. And you're not... You aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. See, for a moment, you can imagine it. She's there with Jesus, and for some reason in her mind, she's just forgotten how she has misused sex. She's forgotten all the stuff she's done that's going to make it impossible for her to be friends with God. She's just forgotten it. And she says, oh, Jesus, I'd like to come to you and have that living water. And he says, go and get your husband. And she's like... Oh my goodness, he knows. And hopefully he doesn't know about the other five. Oh, he knows about them too. Right, I'm in root. Well, don't worry about it. Sorry, awkward. I'm out of here. Have a nice day. No one needs to know about this. It's in the most best-selling book of all time. Anyway, no one will ever need to know about this. 
But here's a woman who longed for general, genuine satisfaction. She had tried getting satisfaction in all the wrong places. She understood what it's like when relationships break down. She understands what it's like when sexual intimacy is broken up and spread across different partners. And you'd think that you know, she's done it all with all these different people. She's got to be the most fulfilled person on the earth. Five husbands. How blessed is that? But she was empty and thirsty and she wanted genuine satisfaction. You'd think she'd already have it. But no. And so Jesus offered this woman a a fresh start and complete satisfaction. He said to her, anyone who drinks this water that he's talking about, will, that's in the you know, actual water, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give, Jesus says, will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. See, the kind of sex that the world offers is counterfeit. It's fake. It's distorted. The world thinks that sex is just a physical thing. And it doesn't matter how you do it or who you do it with. But the sex that the world sells is a fraud. True sex is wonderful. And you can enjoy it by following the maker's instructions. God is not a killjoy. He's not anti-sex. He made sex. And he knows how to have the best sex possible. But you've got to trust him. Turning your back on your past is worth it. And even better, Jesus will accept you no matter what you've done. No matter how many sexual partners you've had, how many sexual partners you currently have, turn your back on that. Come to Jesus and he will forgive you. And he will give you water, living water, that will never, ever, ever Make you thirsty. Jesus will forgive you and will fulfill you. See, over the past week, there's been a lot more talk about sex in the church. Have you noticed it? Hmm. And sadly, it's been in the context of the sexual abuse by children by the highest ranking Catholic priest in Australia. On a panel on the ABC program The Drum last week, on the day when the news was finally made public, the seasoned critic of Christianity, David Marr, said, Christian institutions are all about sex. And he said, Sex is the gateway to faith in so many Christian and other religions in Australia. And he said, The commitment to making it the issue is the barrier to younger people exploring religious faith. Interesting, isn't it? He says that the church just talks about sex all the time and that's why young people don't come to church anymore. But the reality is that the church didn't start this. Sex is now how our society defines people. That's why there's so much talk about it at the moment. Which letter of the alphabet are you? You see, it's all about how you are defined. It's all about sex will define you and say who you are and who you're not and who you're acceptable by and who you're not acceptable by. The reason that we talk about sex in the church 
is because we know the creator of humans and we know what he thinks about sex and he knows what is best for sex. And as we have access to this missing instruction booklet of sex, we want to share it with people who are using sex in a way that is harmful to them and to others. We want people to know how to use this wonderful gift from God in a way that's most wise and loving. See, the world doesn't want to listen to this. They've taken sex and distorted it and they don't want to admit they're wrong. And they don't want to come back to their creator and seek his forgiveness and blessing. For many of them, it's just too humiliating. It's a bit like you go to Ikea, you get the box of stuff and someone says, are you going to look at the instructions? It's like, nah, she'll be right. <laughs> and then you're just in this world of Alan Key pain. You know? It's like, where the heck does that... Well, well, you know, we'll give it a go and you just can't get it together. And someone says, have you thought about the instructions? No, oh, it's too late now. Well, why don't you open them up and have a look and see how they all work because they came with the thing you bought. Uh, no, who uses instructions? And you've got this bookcase that's sort of like on an angle and it sort of rocks from side to side. You think, no, she's right, mate. As we come to God's word, we get the instruction book. And it is, well, it sometimes requires us to say sorry to God for using his thing the wrong way. But in the end, with all of this, I want to say it again, it's more important to know Jesus than to have good sex. We all need to come to Jesus to seek his forgiveness and follow him as loving ruler. And in return, God will then show us how to have the best sex ever. You know, as we're, we're almost at the end now, we've got three more talks to go after this, all about love, sex and marriage. And as we, we learn from his word about the power of love, we will learn that we have in this the power to give great happiness, but also something that is very powerful that will lead at times to immense sadness. See, sexual love is about being a human. And like everything, it is best when we follow the loving rule of our creator. And I reckon that as I speak about sex over these four weeks, it will stir up some emotions. It will stir up emotions in us all. If you're a person who's been hurt by love or sex, then this poem may bring up strong emotions. And if you feel that way, come to God and say, God, I'm feeling strong emotions about this. And maybe you need to talk to somebody who's a trusted Christian and say, I'm just feeling all this stuff that's stirred up as a result of this. Talk. If you're a person who's not married, you might have mixed feelings about studying this bit of the Bible. It's a bit like, well, you know, that's kind of stirring up things that I don't really need to think about right yet. If you're single, then maybe this might be awkward as well and maybe it might make you feel uncomfortable or unhappy. See, there's all sorts of things that will come up as we study this. But we need to pay particular attention to what this book of the Bible tells us about sex for all of us. And we must, in all of this, pray for contentment with our life situation. And if I uh, offend you by talking about bits of bodies and stuff like that that you may not expect to have in church, I, I do seek your forgiveness. But I, at the same time, I'm seeking to say just what the Bible says and recognise that we've actually got a bit of the Bible that's pretty intense 
and we come here in church, which seems a good place to look at the Bible, even though it might not be exactly what we might expect. God has given us a world with love. He made male and female, and he made love, sex, and marriage, and they are good gifts for us to love and to enjoy and to thank him for. Let me pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for this bit of the Bible you've given us. We thank you for love, sex, and marriage. And pray now that as we have looked at your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would meet us where we're at, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that you would forgive us as we know we fail. And above all, Lord, may the message tonight be clear in all of our ears that the number one thing tonight is about being friends with Jesus and everything else comes second. And may this be a night where even the problems of sex that lead us to stand away from you would be put aside, knowing your love and your forgiveness and the living water that Jesus supplies. And we ask it in his name. Amen.